Stay tuned for Cover to Cover Open Book with Javelin Richards. afternoon and welcome to Cover to Cover Javelin's Bistro. It's good to be here on this Wednesday afternoon. Beautiful weather in the East Bay. A good day to come out and come to the station to spend some time with you, our listeners. And today's show, my guest is Janie Sakata, and she is the playwright of Hold These Truths, which is playing at the Lucille Stern, Lucy Stern Theater through August 5th, and that's in Palo Alto. And one of the intriguing things that I, as I approach um, this interview, is thinking about many of the productions and films that are coming up are looking at history and what we can learn from history, how history repeats itself. And as you just heard in one of the cards, all the president's men is playing, which is taking us back to a time that we are seeing happen and unfold before us or possibly. And this piece here, Hold These Truths, I think is speaking to, although it happened at a, a different time in history, the the mechanisms of what happened, how it happened, and what happened after that is speaking to us right now. So I think this is a important piece of work, and the playwright is here on the phone with me to talk about the show that's running right now at Theater Works in Silicon Valley. They're kicking off their season with these hold with hold these truths, an inspiring story about George Gordon Hirabayashi, a Japanese American student who fought internment to a relocation camp during World War II. This Northern California premiere celebrates the human spirit as it chronicles Hirabayashi's journey from college in Seattle all the way to the Supreme Court and eventually to a Presidential Medal of Freedom. It's directed by Lisa Roth and the the person playing it is Joel De La Fuente. Hold These Truths, written by Janie Sakata. Good afternoon, Janie, and welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. And thank you. And you have a large body of work as an actor, a playwright that spans across theater, film, television, and voiceover. So you've had a very rich career in and of itself. So kudos to you for being out here as a creative artist and and taking the, your approach to stories in all the genres that's available to you. Oh, thank you so much. I've been very blessed, and it's really a thrill to come back to my native Bay Area uh, to share the play. So give us a snapshot for you about what this play is about. We know that the character uh, is fighting uh, to, uh, against the internment camps. What is it in terms of the human spirit as you was writing it and as you were seeing it unfold at Theater Works? What is it about for our human spirit? One thing that really appealed to me about this story was that it, to me, was a story of a journey of enlightenment. Gordon here, Biashi, did not, uh, he was not a rebel from the very outset. He was very uh, cognizant of his position as a Japanese-American 
in the society of that time, which meant that he was hearing all about uh, the freedoms that the Constitution promised to him as an American and yet was not experiencing those freedoms on a daily basis. You know, he was experiencing the racism uh, of that time towards the Japanese as well as the barriers that were in place in society against him. Uh, for example, not being able to be admitted to swimming pools or hotels or restaurants because of his Japanese ancestry. So Gordon grew up in a kind of schizophrenic environment by his own description. And um, what happened to him was that he became um, gradually more and more unable to switch back and forth between these two worlds. He became enlightened that he had to take a stand. He had to take a stand against uh, this dual nature of his existence. He had to say yes to an America that didn't exist yet, but that he hoped would in the future by defying the curfew and exclusion orders. And so I think Gordon is a kind of hero that many of us can relate to. Uh, he had to learn to become that hero. He had to learn to find the courage to take that stance. So in that sense, I think that he is one of us. And that was of tremendous appeal to me. I think you're right. I think that we're now in present time thinking about democracy and what we want this country to become. And that I think many people in many circles and particularly in the conversations on KPFA, there are many guests that we have and, and my colleagues as well. We don't take for granted that we live in a democracy, but we what we want to do is to have the courage that Gordon had to figure out ways in which to define that in our daily lives and have those enlightened moments as he had. There's, uh, Gordon had a, a hitchhiking experience. What was that about? This was one of the delightful aspects of the story that really drew me and attracted me because I thought that it was something you could never make up. <laughs> People ask me if that actually happened, and I say, yes, it actually did happen, just as he described it. Um, what happened was that he had been in jail for months and months and months because they could not find an attorney to represent him. You know, it was very difficult to find an attorney that would represent a, someone of Japanese ancestry at that time. And um, when he was uh, finally convicted... Uh, at the lower court, he was given a sentence of 60 days for each count, the curfew, defiance, and the defiance of uh, the forced removal orders. And he had heard in jail that if he had a sentence of 90 days or more, he could serve the time outdoors in a prison camp. And he had been in jail for months and so was dying to get outside. And so he asked the judge if he could have a longer sentence than 60 days. But he asked if he could have a sentence of 90 days or longer so that he could serve his time outdoors in the prison camp. So the judge accommodated him and he said, well, I'll give you a 90 day sentence for each count that you can serve concurrently. So what happened was Gordon took that and he um, later on took this hitchhiking trip in the play. He takes it. Uh, while he waits for uh, the results of his appeal. Uh, 
Now, in the uh, in the scenario of real life, that tracking trip actually took place after his Supreme Court decision. But in order to make a better play that builds to a climax, we relocated that in chronology to take place before the Supreme Court decision. Uh, so Gordon uh, goes to an attorney in um, Spokane, and the Spokane attorney says, well, you have to spend your time out indoors in a jail because we don't have the money to send you to a prison camp. And Gordon offers to pay his own way to prison. <laughs> and so the federal attorney says, well, okay, if you pay your own way, I guess I can't object. So he writes out a permit for Gordon to carry with him on a hitchhiking trip. So Gordon ends up hitchhiking all the way, practically all the way from Spokane to Tucson, where he served his outdoor prison sentence in a road camp. Uh, now, in real life, he made it down to a little north, I think, of Tucson. And then because there were very few cars on the road during that time because of gas rationing, uh, he, I think he had to take a bus into Tucson the last few miles. <laughs> but this is a, a detail you could never make up. Absolutely, and also very fascinating for it. Uh, it shows a, a part of his character that he was brave enough to be innovative enough to think about, well, I'll pay for it. I'll do it, and this is what I want to do. So something in him and his character uh, that speaks to the man that he was and was becoming in, in, in the midst of these challenges that he was faced with. When you yes. did, now, did you have an opportunity to talk with Gordon? Yes, I spent several days with him, interviewing him. I did two sets of interviews with him, as well as phone calls. And the first set of interviews was actually here in the Bay Area. He had two brothers, one younger brother, James Hirabayashi, who was a professor at San Francisco State and the Dean of Ethnic Studies and Asian American Studies. And he was visiting his brother, James, and he needed a ride to his brother, Edward Hirabayashi's place in Glen Ellen. So I offered to take Gordon from his uh, brother, James' place, to his brother, Ed's place. And we first met at Ed's place uh, with Ed, and I got to hear the brothers reminisce about their childhood, which was a wonderful treat. And great for the play, because I used some of the stories they talked about. <laughs> and I interviewed Gordon there. And then what happened was I was so intrigued by his responses that I called him and I asked him if I could come again and interview in, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, where he was a retired professor of sociology. And when you went for that interview, it was with the intentions of writing this piece. Yes, I told him from the very beginning I was fascinated by his story and that I wanted to try and turn it into a one-person show. And I want to give a shout-out to Rick Shiomi, who is a Japanese-American theater director who, until recently, was heading up Theater Moo in Minneapolis because Rick was the first person to write about Gordon dramatically. Uh, he wrote a play years ago, I think, um, one of the original titles was Play Ball. And it was really a courtroom drama with a sort of baseball metaphor about Gordon. But I wanted to take, take a whole different approach to writing about Gordon. I wanted to write a solo show. 
So um, I was able to talk to Gordon and get his blessing on my efforts. And what was your creative uh, muse that for you to decide this needs to be a solo performance and to trust all of this story inside of the actor? Where What was that process for you? Well, in the 1990s, solo shows were not as common as they are now. I think I actually saw two of the very first solo shows that were out there. One was done by a good friend of mine, Jude Narita, Japanese-American sansei actor like me. And she did a one-woman show in Los Angeles where she played four or five different characters. And it really blew me away when I saw it. And when I encountered Gordon's story, I thought to myself that it would be such a wonderful way to tell the story because Gordon is telling his story from his memory and drawing up these different characters that he encounters in his incredible, quintessentially American journey. And I thought this would just be a wonderful way to tell the story where one actor embodies these characters that come out of his memory and telling about his American journey. And I had a second motive, which was that American, Asian American actors many times do not have the opportunity to show the virtuosity that they are capable. And it had tremendous appeal to me to write a show where an Asian American actor could do that. You know, show the height and breadth and width and depth of what he, she was capable of. Okay. And when you witness it now on stage, so for our listeners, uh, this is uh, Cover to Cover Javelin's Bistro. And the show we're talking about is Hold These Truths. And it is written by Janisha Kata and is playing now up until August 5th at the Lucide Stern Theater, and that's in Palo Alto. And for more information yeah. about it, you can visit the website at Theater works.org or you can call 650-463-1960. Now, Jordan made a decision in the library. What was that decision? What happened was when the curfew orders came out for all people of Japanese ancestry, Mm -hmm. Gordon was initially humiliated and embarrassed uh, by these orders because he was an American citizen but because he was of Japanese ancestry the curfew order declared that he had to be back into his dorm at 8 o'clock p.m. and he had a habit of being out at the library or the coffee shop studying with friends of his who were international students they were not American citizens they were from you know um, England or the Philippines or China And he was running back to make this curfew, leaving his friends at the library. And one night he said he was running back and he stopped in the middle of the courtroom because a question arose in his mind. And that question was, why am I, an American citizen, running back to obey an 8 p.m. curfew? And my international friends, who are not American citizens, still have the freedom to study at the library. And he said once that question arose in his mind, he could not go back to the YMCA dorm where he was staying. He said it was unacceptable to him. He could not answer that question. 
So he turned around, he went back to the library, and he sat down, and all of his friends were shocked and asked him what he was doing. And he said, well, you're here studying at the library. I should have that freedom, too. So he said none of his friends, although they were shocked at what Gordon was doing, none of them turned him in or said anything. Uh, They welcomed him back. I think they were a little unsettled by what he had done. But I think Gordon even surprised himself. He was obeying that curfew up until that moment where he asked himself that question about his American citizenship. And from that point on, he never obeyed the curfew again. What a sad and brutal moment. Sad and and a, and a moment to be celebrated. To in that moment running, and I'm seeing that, and I, I will be uh, seeing the piece. I have not had a chance to go beforehand, but I'm going to go see. Hold these truths. But in my mind, as I'm listening to you, and to see someone, American citizen, running in the night, and then to hold that question, which is the the title of your piece hold these truths why mm-hmm. am, yes why am i why am i and then to turn back to the real truth this is i'm supposed to be in the library studying yes just like a normal student yes so i love I, I love that moment so much because it's just as how gordon described it to me and yet even though he was disobeying the curfew every night and hugely enjoying the fact that he was disobeying the curfew, when the exclusion orders came out, he was fully intending to go along with them. And what happened was he was driving uh, Japanese-American families out to Puyallup Fairground Assembly Center where they were housing families in horse stalls before they were shipped out to the final destination, which were the barbed wire camps in the desert. And when he saw the barbed wire, he said to himself, my God, this is a much worse violation of my constitutional rights than the curfew is. And he knew he would have to defy those orders in that moment. He realized that. And this is goes this goes to your first question, one reason why I love this story. It was a gradual journey of enlightenment. Mm. And I think that Gordon, as I said, surprised himself in those moments. I, I know that he certainly surprised his friends and his community. I interviewed a woman who is very good friends with Gordon during his college years, and she told me that Gordon shocked everybody. She said, Gordy shocked us all. We didn't know he was capable of doing something like that. And did, and inside of knowing him in this other way, did they share how his courage impacted their lives in terms of the courage that we all need to have as we move through this life in one way or another, you as an artist, as an actor, and all the ways in which you're putting, putting things into the world and being a part of that, there's a level of courage. Did they... In his modeling, this courage in the face of this extreme uh, attack on his American citizenship and Japanese Americans, did they walk away with something in their toolbox that will last them hopefully the rest of their lives? Well, I think we have to take in consideration the times. There was tremendous fear in the Japanese American community about the fact that they overnight um, 
were the targets of much hostility and blame following the attack on Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. I should actually qualify that. You know, there had been decades of racism against Japanese, against Chinese, against immigrants, you know, of Asian heritage. But um, Pearl Harbor meant that many in the Japanese and Japanese-American community were targeted in a way that intensified after attack because they were being blamed for it. And so there was tremendous fear among Gordon's own community about what he was doing. Even his own mother begged him not to protest and to do what he was doing because she was, number one, afraid for him and what the government might do to him. And number two, afraid for the fact that what Gordon was doing might reflect badly on the community. And there were those in Gordon's circle of friends and in the community that said, you're going to make all of us look suspect if you do this. And so they got a lot of phone calls, you know, at at his mother's home saying, please convince him not to do it. Please convince him. And so I think that initially there were a lot of people that did not support what Gordon was doing. Um, and I think it took decades for people to appreciate what he had done. In hindsight, of course, it's easy to look back and um, make second guesses about things. But I think that the fact that the community grew more bold as the decades went on in terms of sharing what had happened to them in the caps. And as those stories came out, there was tremendous appreciation that Gordon, as a young college student, had had the vision to oppose these orders as young as he was. And um, also because he did not have a lot of people around him. There was no you know, mass civil rights movement in the 1940s supporting Gordon. Even the ACLU initially did not support him. So there was a a small circle of friends around Gordon that did support him and helped him with his court case, helped raise money for his defense. Uh, but in some ways, it was a lonely stand during the 1940s. Which, as again, as you're sharing, I'm thinking about this solo performance artist, uh, Joel De La Fuente, who's playing yes. the role like alone on the stage and holding this big story that's in, that informs us of, of history that we can learn from to take into our today, our present time, right now as we sit in our history. And how did Gordon respond to the events in the 80s when the U.S. finally acknowledged that the internment was wrong, internment was wrong? Well, Gordon always saw his story as an American story. He was Japanese-American. He was Nisei, second generation. But he recognized that if this happened to him, if this happened to Americans of Japanese ancestry, it could happen to Americans of any other ethnic ancestry depending on the times. So when Gordon was vindicated, he really saw it as an American victory and a victory on behalf of all Americans. And I think that the fact that third-generation Sansi attorneys, some of which are, you know, in this area, Dale Minami, Don Tamaki, um, and some in the Seattle area, Rod Kawakami, Lori Benai, Catherine Benai, many, many more. These uh, Sansei 
attorneys are heroes as well because they put in years of their time pro bono to bring Gordon Hirabashi's case back into the courts as well as Min Yasui's and Fred Korematsu who was San Francisco native and I think that it was a great day on the part of the entire community but also a great day for uh, the United States I think that the whole experience of World War II for a Japanese American showed the country at its worst and then decades later at its best when it issued an apology and reparations to surviving members of the camp. I was uh, talking to you through email with Richard who talked with you on Monday and um, about the play and that's going on. Uh, hold these truths and one of the questions that he did not have a chance to ask you was to talk about how the army lied to Roosevelt President Roosevelt at the time yes well what happened was that there was a report issued by General John DeWitt who was one of the main architects of the camp and this was called the final report and it was a document that was supposed to justify uh, the mass incarceration policy to the supreme court and there was there were some very racist statements in this report that war department attorneys caught and they said we cannot submit this to the supreme court because it shows our racism essentially and so they doctored the report. They rewrote offending passages and ordered all 10 copies of this uh, report to be burned. But there was one that survived. And so years later, that and other evidence enabled these attorneys, Fonse attorneys, to help Gordon, Min, and Fred take their cases back into the court. You have been listening to Jasmine Sa. Kata, and she is the playwright of Hold These Truths that are playing now through August 5th at Lucy Stern Theater, and that's in Palo Alto. You can visit the website at theaterworks.org or call 650-463-1960. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you. You're right, and I will see everyone the next time here on KPFA, Cover to Cover, Joblin's Bistro. Bye-bye. KPFA is banging the tribal drum this summer, doing our part to rally America against, take your pick, jailing children, dismantling the health care system, or the war against women's rights. This summer is truly a season of resistance, persistence, and disruption. We're preparing for the battle at the ballot box in November. Bang the tribal drum. Stand up with 94.1 FM. We'll be asking for your support so we can remain as vigilant as always at KPFA. One of the world's most celebrated moral philosophers, acclaimed scholar and humanist, Martha Nussbaum, professor of law and ethics at the University of Chicago, 
author of so many books, is coming to the Bay to express her views. Her new book is The Monarchy of Fear. A philosopher looks at our political crisis. Martha Nussbaum will be at our co-sponsor St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley on Thursday evening, August 23rd, beginning 730. Tickets available at brownpapertickets.com and our blessed indie bookstores. Listeners, friends, comrades, thank you for coming to KPFA's author events, thereby supporting KPFA as well as many independent progressive writers. This is Bob Baldock assuring you that Ken Preston, Catherine Horsley, and I will again this fall be offering you remarkably inexpensive seats to hear and meet such relevant writers as philosopher Martha Nussbaum, Chris Hedges with his new book, America, The Farewell Tour. Didi Guttenplan of The Nation magazine, Michael Lerner of Tikkun, the profoundly wonderful Alice Walker, Peter Phillips and Mickey Huff of Project Censored, Buddhist teacher Joan Halifax, brilliant historian Adam Hochschild, Mideast expert Reese Ehrlich with Norman Solomon, and the merry, mindful mystic Gary Gock. There will be more. Please keep an eye on the KPFA website and your ear on 94.1 FM. Much respect. Saturday, July 28th, KPFA, in partnership with the New Parkway Theater in Oakland, present our inaugural movie matinee, All the President's Men. All the President's Men stars Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman as the Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, who uncover the Watergate scandal. This film is the story of a story of two reporters covering a suspicious third-rate burglary and following it all the way to the White House. All the President's Men is as smart and as cautionary today as it was in 1976. Nothing's riding on this except the uh, First Amendment of the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Join us Saturday, July 28th at 3 p.m. at the new Parkway Theater, 474 24th Street between Telegraph and Broadway in Oakland for All the President's Men, an intelligent and provocative film about our nation's political failing. This is a KPFA benefit. Information for tickets is online at kpfa.org. Good afternoon. You're listening to 94.1 KPFA Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF Fresno, 97.5 K24AB 